Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. In this episode, I speak with Claire Bartram, an ESG specialist on modern slavery at ISS ESG. Full disclosure, ISS owns both ISS ESG and Rainmaker Information, publisher of this podcast. Claire, uh, welcome to The Greener Way, and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, can we start off with just a little bit of introduction uh, and how it how it is that you came to be uh, the specialist on modern slavery and its implications for ISS ESG? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rachel, for having me. So I am the ESG specialist in modern slavery with ISS um, ESG, and I work across our global teams leading our research on modern slavery and also collaborative engagement services for institutional investors. My background is, or my academic background is in modern slavery, and I have been working in human rights, education and labour rights. Um, And so I've just joined the role with ISS um, about a year ago, and it's a brand new role for the company and it's a priority for us and obviously for investors. Um, So we've got a lot of exciting projects lined up. Well, you you came straight out the gate, Claire, uh, with this joint study between ISS ESG and Monash University, um, which I found really interesting because it uncovered uh, that there are some significant areas of concern and risk um, amongst ASX-listed companies when it comes to modern slavery. Um, Can you give a little bit of a background as to the conclusions of the report and, you know, where to from here now that you've, now that you and Monash have identified some areas of concern? So the study that we did with um, Monash Centre for Financial Studies was looking at um, ASX 300 reporting under the Modern Slavery Act that we have in Australia. Uh, And we looked at the first year of reporting under the Act and broadly where there are gaps in reporting. Um, And what we found was that really there were three key gaps in modern slavery uh, reporting and also uh, risk management and performance And so those were um, primarily that uh, companies are overlooking risk within their operations. So I think typically when we think of modern slavery, uh, we think of um, risks within supply chains, which is primarily where the risk occurs. And it's it's obviously a hidden crime and it's concealed within complex and fragmented supply chains where labour is outsourced to regions where there there aren't strong labour protections. That doesn't mean that um, there aren't risks within company operations, particularly where they might be operating in high-risk countries, countries facing conflict, um, countries where there's high levels of corruption or poverty, um, and also where the workforce demographics might leave workers more vulnerable to modern slavery. So, for example, if they rely a lot on temporary migrant workers um, or seasonal workers in the agricultural sector, uh, for example. So, That was um, the first gap that we identified. Um, So around uh, 40% of ASX 300 uh, companies have operations uh, in countries that are considered vulnerable to modern slavery, but only 4% uh, in their modern slavery statements are identifying that they have high-risk operations. And then the second gap that we identified was um, within supply chain risks. So uh, this was um, really found that companies were overlooking the risks within their extended supply chain. So we've seen quite a few examples in the past year um, with raw materials that are sourced from um, the Xinjiang Autonomous Region, um, where Uyghur workers are reported to be subject to to forced labour. So polysilicon in in solar panels and cotton uh, uh, among some. 
And so those risks are really um, in the extended supply chain. So not where companies have direct relationships with suppliers, um, but where it might be their fourth, fifth tier um, that they're sourcing raw materials from. So that was um, the second gap. And then the third was uh, on remediation. And so this is a challenge across the board, not just for Australian companies. Um, It's a core pillar of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, but it's often the overlooked pillar. But it's fundamentally important because um, it's really about how we meaningfully provide compensation and, um, and justice and and restoration for victims of modern slavery where a company has actually identified an incident of modern slavery in their um, operations or in their supply chain. Without seeming too callous, Claire, why does it matter? I mean, obviously there's legal compliance that comes through the Modern Slavery Act, uh, both the federal legislation and then the New South Wales version of it. But um, why should investors care that there are these gaps in the companies that they're invested in? So aside from the moral case, which I think it's important that we keep coming back to that because Mm -hmm. fundamentally, uh, I think as consumers and as investors and as business owners, we want um, to make sure that the products and the industries um, that we are involved in have fair and dignified conditions for workers. That's really at the heart of why modern slavery matters. And I think it's important that we put that first But there is also a really strong business case for why investors should address modern slavery. And I'll just touch on two. Um, The first, as you mentioned, is regulatory pressures and the the modern slavery regulatory landscape is rapidly evolving. Um, We have seen modern slavery legislation passed um, in Australia uh, and in the UK, which builds on um, legislation in California. It was passed several years ago. But countries like Canada and New Zealand are also um, have acts at the moment that they're considering um, legislation that they're that's been proposed and going through public consultation. But then we also have the movement towards human rights due diligence that we're seeing in the EU and other jurisdictions, and that's really pushing a broader look at human rights, but also has implications for modern slavery. And some of this le- legislation, the Australian Act in particular explicitly requires investors to produce an annual statement on the steps they're taking to assess and also address modern slavery risks uh, within their operations and supply chain. And the other kind of landmark move of the Australian legislation was to extend the reporting criteria to investments. So it actually requires investors to also look at, at an overall thematic level, Uh, their investment portfolio, um, how they might be exposed to modern slavery through those investments or their lending arrangements, and then identify where there are significant areas of concern Mm. uh, and how they plan to address those. It's it's fascinating to see the ways in which investors are are dealing with their responsibilities, um, and not just the report from a reporting perspective, but then moving on towards the you know, sort of the remediation aspect of it. I think that's going to be a fascinating topic um, or action, series of actions to take um, over the next couple of years. One of the other things that really struck me about the Modern Slavery Act is the sort of the progressive nature of it and the fact that there is a, there's a review process that we're currently undergoing um, to see, you know, how the first couple of years have worked and where changes need to be made. In terms of, you know, sort of key asks or key gaps, um, are there sort of a, is there a general coalescing around how the act may need to be improved or fine-tuned to achieve the, the aims? 
I think that so the Monsai React review, um, which, as you said, is we're going through the process at the moment, that was really an, another landmark move of the Australian legislation that that's actually built into the legislation, this review process. So that's really positive first step um, that the government is going through that review. I think so the the terms of reference that the government's um, released and then they will go through a process of public consultation and table a report um, before parliament with the findings of that review in in March next year. Um, But those terms of reference do cover off some of the, I guess, key criticisms that have that there have been of the Australian Act, but also broadly of mandatory disclosure legislation, which is the model that Australia took with the Australian Act. Um, Mm. And so the review will consider um, issues like uh, compliance and how um, compliance could be um, improved, whether there needs to be a change to the revenue threshold, so um, the, the companies that the legislation is applicable for, um, and also the reporting criteria and whether that sufficiently captures the steps that a company um, needs to take in order to address modern slavery. And, and I think the, the enforcement and the compliance has really been, um, we've seen a lot of discussion about that um, even in the early stages of the review. And the UK, um, which the Australian legislation was modelled on, um, the government has actually committed to implement penalties uh, for non-compliance with mm-hmm. the Act. Um, and while it hasn't been implemented as yet, I think that will put pressure on the Australian government to make sure that their legislation is keeping pace um, with the UK model. Mm. And the enforcement part of it is really critical because when we look at learnings from the UK and five years, six years of reporting under the legislation, Uh, the figures are that around 60% of companies that are required to report are not even producing a statement. And then 40% of those that are reporting um, are not meeting the minimum standards of um, the legislation. So I think it will be a a tricky tricky for the government to consider the, the compliance because it's obviously what type of penalties are introduced, uh, it has to have thoughtful consideration and whether they're looking at compliance with just producing a statement or actually looking at those reporting criteria and fundamentally what the Act is about um, and and placing enforcement mechanisms on those. Is there much of an appetite from, from your observation, Claire, f- to sort of pick up um, enforcement mechanisms such as import bans as seen in the United States and sort of, you know, give the Australian government the muscle from that perspective? Um, similarly to pick up, say, an independent modern slavery commissioner as the New South Wales model has gone for um, in terms of sort of picking off the the best of the evolving space of legislation and, and what impact might those have um, for companies uh, as they uncover instances of modern slavery? I think it is important to remember that the Modern Slavery Act and mandatory disclosure legislation in particular is just one of the legislative models in the Mm. toolbox to address modern slavery. And as you've mentioned, there's, of course, things like restrictions on imports or the model that the EU is going with, with mandatory human rights due diligence. And the review that the Australian government's going through at the moment did include mention of looking to other jurisdictions to see whether we need to harmonise our legislation um, to, you know, maintain consistency with what's happening abroad. Whether that includes considering import bans isn't entirely clear, but 
the incoming Labor government has committed to um, consider that and appoint an anti-slavery, independent anti-slavery commissioner who would produce a list of high-risk countries and industries and then the onus would be on importers to um, provide evidence that, that goods they're sourcing from regions on that list are not produced with forced labour. Mm. So that would be a really positive move. And we've seen in the UK, um, sorry, in the US, uh, where there has been import restrictions for several years enforced by their custom and boredom protection, that companies have changed practices um, following those import bans. I've yet to see a really systematic study of the impact of those long term on, you know, reduction of modern slavery or on changing corporate practices within industries. Um, I think that's kind of the next step we need um, in order to assess really what's the most effective legislative model. But my personal belief is that we probably need a variety of different approaches, not just one um, one type of legislative model. Uh, it's obviously a very complex issue and, and crosses across multiple industries. And so we're going to need to kind of tackle it from all angles. And what's your view as well? I, I mentioned earlier that uh, the Australian government, the former government just before the election was called, um, signed off on the, the forced labour protocol. What does that add to the discussion, Claire? And because it, it's interesting, you know, in talking with uh, legal experts um, for my reporting, there seems to be sort of a, a dichotomy as to whether or not the ILO is sort of um, just officially recognizing what Australia has done already, or whether or not there's actually significant new uh, obligations that will have to be brought to bear and integrated into any changes as a result of signing on to the forced labor protocol. What, what's your view? So I think with the forced labor protocol, uh, there's one, uh, what's really positive about it is um, well, two things really. So the forced labour protocol builds on obviously the, the 1930 forced labour convention, which has almost universal ratification. Australia's ratified it. Um, but what the forced labour protocol did was recognise that um, forced labour now takes many different forms in a modern context, including forced labour and human trafficking within uh, global supply chains. And so by Australia ratifying the protocol, I'm not necessarily sure that's going to be the trigger for increased due diligence for companies, but it's certainly part of the government's national action plan and it's a positive step in really highlighting that um, modern slavery is occurring also within um, private sector, private companies, and that the government has a role to play there in supporting companies to address that. I think the other really positive part of the protocol is that it um, includes, uh, so as a legally binding instrument for states, um, it includes provisions around remediation, compensation and justice for victims. And that's an area where Australia probably really could develop. Um, there's been reports of treatment of migrant workers in Australia, um, international students. Uh, and so we do have modern slavery in Australia and um, the government obviously has a role to play there. That's really the government's responsibility. And so that's hopefully what the protocol will push changes within how um, victims have access to remediation. So let's let's turn to that question of remediation, because I think that this is sort of the I don't want to say the big threat, but I think the big question mark um, and a couple of qu questions without delving too philosophical. What 
does reme- what does remediation look like? Because it's it's fairly I think it's fairly straightforward to say okay we won't do it again whatever the again is. But what is the justice? What is the make good for people who have been negatively impacted by modern slavery? And and how do organizations decide um, what good remediation looks like? Uh, in terms of uh, compensating sounds, you know, sort of not quite encompassing for what happened to people who have experienced modern slavery conditions. Yeah, it's very complicated. (laughs) Um, And it is, I think it's hard. You know, I recognize it's hard for businesses to know what to do, particularly if, you know, you identify a modern slavery incident that is really far down in your supply chain where you might not have leverage, um, where you might need to work across industry um, with other with other buyers potentially to address the issue, and that really it, it poses a lot of challenges. But I think, um, as we were saying earlier, it is fundamentally it's a core pillar of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. So it's it's something that I think with hopefully the review of the Modern Slavery Act and as we see changes to you know momentum towards human rights due diligence, which creates a lot more obligations on companies around remediation that we'll also similarly see in Australia, it being considered a lot more. But really it's about, so under the UN Guiding Principles in Business and Human Rights, um, the guidance is to provide a grievance mechanism um, for workers, and that should be a mechanism where workers can, and a complaints process where they can raise grievances and then have those addressed in a way that's accessible, equitable, transparent, um, and ultimately confidential as well. That's the fundamental. But then, of course, remediation is really about restoring a victim to their previous condition, which when you think about modern slavery, um, there might be issues of um, needing to claim unpaid wages. A very common one is that, particularly for migrant workers, um, they may have paid really excessive recruitment fees to secure a job. And as a result of that, they're in debt which is why they're unable to leave their position. They're trapped in this cycle of needing to repay their recruitment fees but not earning enough to be able to repay those. Um, And so companies may reimburse recruitment fees. But then, of course, when you think of on slavery, there is really the psychological harm, and that's much more complicated to remediate um, and may require compensation or ongoing support for victims. And that's, I think, the piece that we really need to tackle about what guidance is there when the incident is distanced, not in your operations, um, or when you're an investor and you're trying to, um, through your engagement activities, you're trying to address remediation um, with one of the companies in your portfolio, then what is the guidance for you for that more, that longer term psychological harm? Because of course, that might take many, many years to restore. How do you compensate for a, a loss of freedom, a sense of loss of freedom, for example? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that does also require, so wrapped up into remediation is also the um, ongoing due diligence to ensure that the practice doesn't happen again. And that's about examining in your supply chain, for example, examining your own purchasing practices, examining your own policies and, and systems around um, forced labor or child labor. And really trying to, and that's where multi-stakeholder collaboration can be really uh, impactful working with unions or worker representative organisations, community organisations that work directly with workers um, to try and create um, systemic change. 
So, Claire, as we come to the end of this conversation, um, obviously we have recently elected a new government. Um, are there any signposts that you're looking to in terms of, obviously we've touched on the three-year review, um, are there you know, platforms within the Labour Party uh, that you would think would have bearing on the way in which uh, modern slavery is adjudicated, remediated, and, and things that you'll be looking out for over the next couple of years in Australia? I'm primarily going to be keeping an eye on how Australia addresses the increasing momentum towards human rights due diligence in other jurisdictions. And we've talked a little bit about that today, but I think that will be something that we'll increasingly need to um, come to terms with as more and more countries um, strengthen their their regulation for addressing modern slavery. And human rights due diligence does create um, a lot stronger obligations on companies to actually not just identify risks and assess those risks, but to actually respond if there is an incident of modern slavery, which is, of course, where remediation comes in that we've been talking about. So I'm keeping an eye on how, um, with the current model that we have, which is much more about um, encouraging transparency and We've seen great awareness raising through that, but how we then move to the next step. And I think human rights due diligence is really where we move from transparency to impact. And that's that's hopefully the direction that we're going to go in. But how we get there, I think, will be interesting to see how this new government addresses it. Excellent. Well, Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to share your observations. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you like today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allen Backus. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.